Open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. As a change of pace and with what's going on, I'm going to go ahead and sing my sermon this morning. told one of the guys in back I would do that. He says, that is an Operation Crowd Reduction message. (laughs) The book of Malachi. We have been in the book of Malachi for seven weeks, and we've been looking at this Old Testament, uh, in fact, the last Old Testament uh, book uh, that God declares to his people in Israel. And Malachi comes and he announces to the people some words of warning from God. Now, God begins to speak to these people in Malachi's day, and he warns them, and he tells them that the way they're living, the way they are serving, is wrong. The way they worship him is wrong. And God's not happy about what they've done. God's not happy about how they've gone about serving and worshiping the God in heaven. And yet, despite his announcement of covenant love in Malachi 1, when he says, I've loved you, And the idea there is that I've loved you, I always will love you, and there will never be a time that I won't love you. They sit there and they begin to ask questions. They begin to uh, cause trouble uh, with God, saying, God, how have you loved us? What have you done for us lately, is their thought. And as a result of them despising that announcement of love, it resulted in three broken relationships that we talked about last week. We saw that they had broken relationships in regards to their fellowship with their common man. It involved a breaking of fellowship with their father in heaven. And of course, it broke the relationships even within the intimate roles of their marriages and their families. And God speaks to his people. And as we've been looking at, we've been looking at this book that though it is an ancient truth, though it was written long time ago, there's great application for us in the year 2008. Because in Malachi's day, the people were covenant breakers. They would say, oh sure, I will do that. Oh sure, I'll take care of that. Oh God, we will do this for you. And then as soon as the rubber was to meet the road, they would break covenant with God and with one another. And as a result, God rebukes them. The book of Malachi, as I've told you, has seven different arguments between the people of Israel and God. And God uh, brings up this latest argument in uh, Malachi 2, 17. And what he begins to say is he begins to say, I am sick and tired of you and your words. I used to hear that a lot as a child. My parents would say that a whole lot. My mom should have been on the prayer chain for as many times as she was sick and tired. I asked her one time, why doesn't she ever go with tired and sick just to change things up? That's not a good thing to ask your mother when she's sick and tired. But there seems to be within the book of Malachi this feeling of being sick and tired. God is sick and tired with his people. And here's the preposterous thing. The people are sick and tired with God. They're tired. They're fed up with God. In fact, they, they uh, sarcastically ask God uh, where he is and what is he doing? You're not taking care of me. You're not doing what you said you were going to do. And because of it, I'm tired of you, God. And God comes back with the same argument. Now you would say, well, that's a crazy thing to think that a person who says they follow God would be sick and tired of them, of him. And yet we find out so many times, even as Christians, that we become sick and tired with God. 
We grow weary of, of having to do what he says. We grow weary while we watch our neighbors and friends having a good time that we have to toe the line. And, and in our frustration, we may not say it, maybe publicly, maybe even we may say it privately, but I know I've thought it where I sit there and say, God, I'm tired. God, I'm, I'm tired of having to do what you want me to do. I want to be my own man. I want to do my own thing. And that's what the people of Israel were saying because they, they were going back to God and they were saying, you call us a covenant breaker. What have you done for us lately? And so what does God say? God addresses this feeling of being sick and tired. He addresses the people's complaint and the answer comes in Malachi verse two, or chapter 2, verse 17. So let us stand as we look to this text this morning. I'm going to start in verse 10 to give us some context. And then we'll get into our message. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, May the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your covenant, marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because God was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord, God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Here's our text for the morning. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or you ask, where is the God of justice? Let's pray. Father God, we open your word this morning. Father, I pray that our hearts would be focused in on this and this alone. That we'd be moved to this theme, that we would be drawn to this text. Lord, you, you are calling your people out. You say you're tired. You've grown weary of what we say. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be a people who utter words that are unbroken. We do not live lives of hypocr as hypocrites, that we do not uh, break faith with one another. For Lord, we don't want to weary you. Father, we want to be a joy to you. We want to love and serve you in a way that honors and glorifies you. Father, we do not want to fall prey to what these people had fallen prey to. Lord, we do not want to make uh, accusations about you that are not true. So Lord, guard our hearts and mind. Make us uh, ever mindful of what your word says and who you are so that we will know who you are and we will know how to represent you as your children in the world around us. So, Lord, we need your strength and wisdom to do that. Be with me as I teach your word this morning. 
that everything I say and everything I do will be pleasing to you and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. God says through the prophet Malachi, you have wearied me with your words. Now, that would seem odd from a God who does not weary. In fact, the uh, book of Isaiah through the prophet declares that God does not weary or grow tired. So what is God saying to the people of Malachi today when he says, I'm wearied. I'm wearied with what you've said. The idea of this weariness is that, in fact, God had had enough. God was at his boiling point, if you will. Now, that's not a picture we see of God very often. We think of God as just uh, this incredible patient and loving God, and yet God comes to his people and says, I- I'm tired. And in fact, the best way to put it, I'm sick and tired of what you're saying and, and that your words don't focus or your words aren't uh, the, uh, the way you live. They're not matching up. And yet we see God using uh, human language to tell the people to get their attention that he's tired. He's grown weary of what they've said. Now, why would God have grown so weary of the people of Malachi and what they had announced? Well, there are three things that we see that made God weary in the book of Malachi. Number one, there were, write these in your outlines, uh, the people brought forth cynical charges. They brought forth cynical charges. They would question God. God says, I love you. They would say, how? God would say, you placed defiled food on my altar in verse 7 of chapter 1. But you, how have we defiled you? Every time God said something to the people, they would respond back, what do you mean, God? We, we haven't done that. You say you love us, but how have you loved us? And they would bring these charges against God. The next thing we see is that there were sarcastic claims. Look at verse 17. The, uh, one commentary said that this, uh, this uh, verse here in verse 17 is a level of sarcasm in it. Well, God, you know, he delights in those who do wrong. And, and God uh, doesn't only delight in, but, delight in them, but he prospers them, those that sin. And you know, where is this God of justice? And sarcasm had come out to the people of God. And, and you know, it's one thing to be sarcastic with your friends. It's another to be sarcastic with your parents. But one, I can tell you, you should never be sarcastic. You should never be sarcastic with your parents. But even worse than that, you should never be sarcastic with God. You're putting yourself at the same level with God, and they were not. The final thing that wearied God was their sinful condition. They had profaned the covenant, it says. They had turned people away from the truth. They had defiled the Lord's table. They had shown contempt for the Lord. They had broken faith. And like a parent, God comes and He says, I am really sick and tired of what you're doing. He says, especially in regards to their words. Why would he say that their words had wearied them? You need to understand that Malachi, especially in this text that we've been dealing with, broken faith, God's talking about covenants. He's saying a lot about this idea of covenants. Well, how were covenants put together back in the day? There was an oath that was given. An oath would say, I'm going to do something. And the other person of the covenant would say, well, I will do this, that, and the other, and you will do this. And the other guy would say, okay, I'll do that. And there was a covenant that was made. And yet, what would happen is, is they would take those words, and they would make covenant, and then when it was time for action, they would go another way. They would break faith. God is said to grow weary 
many times with our words. In the Sermon on the Mount, God says, don't pray with too much repetition and too many flowery and bombastic words, if you will, because that's how the, uh, the Pharisees pray, and that's not the way to do it. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew uh, 12 that every careless word that we say will be judged before Almighty God. And for a person who has a big mouth, that is a glaring scripture. Every careless word. God is big about the words that we say. And he says, what you guys are talking about right now, it's making me tired. But what caused the people to feel this way? What caused the people to be sick and tired? Shouldn't we get a report from them? Shouldn't we understand why they're angry with God? The answer is they felt gypped by God. God said uh, in Jeremiah that Jeremiah uh, articulates to the people of Israel that the captivity would come to an end and that God had plans for them. We know that scripture. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and to give you a bright hope and a future. And the people said, where's our bright hope? Where's our future? We still have people that are watching over us. Though we may be back in our homeland, we're still under the rule of a foreign uh, king. And then they would say, well, uh, you know, we're supposed to have prosperity and look at our fields and look at our animals. They're nothing. They're falling apart. There's no great harvest that's taking place. They've been told to build a temple. We talked about this uh, in the book of Haggai a couple years ago. And this is the temple that is to replace Solomon's temple that had been destroyed by a, uh, a waging army, a warring army. And as a result of that, they're to rebuild the temple. And when they rebuild this temple under Joshua and Zerubbabel, what happens? It says those that remembered Solomon's temple wept because of the glory that was not shown in the new temple, meaning that the old house was better than the new house. They had nothing going for them. And they said, you know what, God? We're growing tired of your promises and you're the covenant breaker. We're not. And so they looked around at the world. They looked at their situation and they asked a question that we ask all the time as Christians. Where's God? Where is God? And why does it seem that the evil ones grow, uh, gain uh, in life and we as Christians fall behind? Why is it that they seem to be doing so well and we find ourselves in trouble as a result of this, we see that God, first of all, His patience was exhausted. When you start talking to God like this, He's going to grow tired. And it says that He was wearied. Now we need to understand, first of all, that God's patience is one of His greatest attributes. You wouldn't think of patience being an attribute of God, but, but it is. I looked at a couple of systematic theology books speaking of the attributes of God. And patience is in uh, three of the ones that I looked at. In fact, I liked what uh, one individual wrote. Far, he says about the patience of God, far less has been written upon this than any other of the excellencies of God's great character. Few scholars who have spoken at length upon the divine attributes of God have passed over the patience of God without any comment. It is not, it is not easy to suggest a reason for this. For surely the patience of God is as much of one of His divine perfections as His wisdom, His power, His holiness, and as much to be admired and revered by us. True, the actual term of patience will not be found in a concordance so frequently as the others, but the glory of His grace shines itself forth from every page of Scripture speaking of this patience. Certain it is that we lose much if we do not frequently meditate upon this patience of God. 
and earnestly pray that our hearts would be like our Father and become completely conformed to patience. What is the definition of patience? Write this in your outlines. The definition of patience is God's choosing to delay a reaction, whether to sin or something else, so that we can reflect and repent before it's too late. It is God's choosing to delay His reaction to our sin or any other event so that we may reflect or repent in that situation. God's patience. In fact, I love the Greek word for patience that is found in the New Testament is the Greek word macrothumia. Thumia literally is the word that we get thermal from, heat. Thumia, heat is the idea there. Macro is slow, slow to burn is the idea here. And when we speak of God's patience, we think of God having a long fuse. He's not quick to just annihilate his enemies. He's not quick to just hop off the handle like maybe some of us are prone to do. God has a slow burn. God has a long wick. He is patient. And throughout Scripture, we see this and we see a couple things when we read the Scriptures. First of all, God's patience. The reason why God doesn't just go off on these people, even though they don't know it at the time, is that God's patience is extremely long in duration. Turn to Second Peter for a moment. Second Peter, if you're in the book of Malachi, you're going to go pretty much uh, to the very end of the Bible before uh, the three epistles of John and Revelation. In Jude and Revelation, you'll find the book of Second Peter. Second Peter. They sin. They ask why God isn't where He's supposed to be. Why God hasn't allowed for the just justice to happen. And we see what, what the Lord says. Speaking through Peter, it's a reminder so that we will never forget when we ask that question, where is God? And where is the justice that He says He's going to bring? And where is uh, His judgment? Peter tells us. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, in verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. With the Lord, a day is like, fill in the blank, a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some understand slowness. Meaning, Peter's saying that you think God is slow? You're wrong. Your definition of, of slowness or, or the rapid um, execution of God's judgment is wrong. It's God who's got to figure it figured out. Listen to what he says. Because God is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Bible tells us that God is a long-suffering God. And in fact, we are to be long-suffering. We are to be a patient people. Why? Because our God in heaven is a patient God. And we are to be like him. But the other thing that we see in the scriptures is not that it's just extremely long because the people were growing tired of waiting. They were saying, why do the Babylonians and the Medes and Persians get all the fun? Why is it they have all the success? Where is God's judgment? God is saying, my patience with them is extremely long in duration. But understand this, as you look to the length of the duration of God's patience, don't ever forget that as the scripture says in 2 Peter, that God was patient with you. And when we sit there and we look at our neighbors and say, why does he get everything? 
Why is he healthy and I'm not? Why does he have money and I don't? Where is the judgment? It looks like he's having a great time. That's what the people were saying. Look at all that is going on. God does nothing for his people. Remember that the patience that you are, are asking God to move forward, if you, if you will, putting the fast forward button on God's patience, remember the same patience that God shows the sinner is the same patience that God shows the saint. Don't ever forget that. The next thing we see, throw it up there, Steph. It's extremely long in duration, and God's patience will eventually be lost. They'll be eventually lost. The Scripture tells us that God's patience isn't going to go on forever. That it's not just going to be this eternal thing, but that God's patience at some point, like a good parent, is going to run out. A couple of days ago, I was uh, sitting and, and watching a TV program. And my son kept bothering me with, with some things that I didn't think were very important. I told him, just wait a minute, be patient. And he wouldn't do it. And I said, come on, son, be patient. Wait, your dad is busy right now. And he kept grabbing at me and kept grabbing at me. And finally I said, uh, if you get me out of this couch, I swear to all that is good and wholesome in life that you'll never have wished that you asked me the question. What was I telling him? other than I was getting really mad, that he was trying my patience. And there was a moment, and it was me getting myself off the couch, that that patience would be gone. You know, God announces that in Scripture. He says throughout the Scriptures that while I'm a long-suffering God, while I'm a caring God, while I'm a compassionate God, there's a day coming. There's a day coming where it's all going to end. There's a day coming where my wrath is going to be poured out. There's a day coming where people are going to be judged for their sin. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be a thousand years from now, but my, my uh, patience will be lost. In fact, in Second Peter, uh, right after it says that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The next word in verse 10 is B-U-T, but... What he's saying is, I am patient, but the day of the Lord is coming. He's saying, you may see patience, but don't think I'm always going to be patient. A day's coming when I'm going to unleash my anger and my wrath and my judgment upon those who do evil. We see that in Genesis chapter 6. God says that uh, he's angry with people, that every inclination of uh, their lives was towards sin. And so what does he do? He says he was grieved that he had even made man. And he says, I'll give them 120 years. And then after that 120 years, my patience will run out. God did that with Sodom and Gomorrah. When God has this little conversation with Abraham. And Abraham says, I'll go find some people. There have to be some holy people in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me go find them. And God sends them out. And God's patient with Abraham. Until Abraham comes once, twice, even three times. And says, I can't find anyone who is holy, who desires to serve you in Sodom and Gomorrah. What does God do? God's patience runs out and He brings down fire from heaven. God's patience will eventually be lost. So when we feel like God is acting too slowly, when we feel like we're getting the uh, rough end of the, of the stick, the, the tough parts of life, and we wonder where is God and what is God up to, we need to remember God is a patient God. He's patient with us. He's patient with others. 
And God hasn't executed his judgment in its full totality yet. We know that the wrath of God is being revealed against all sorts of ungodliness. We learned about that in Romans 1. But the full measure of that will not be seen until God's patience is eventually lost. Second point this morning we see, not only was God's patience exhausted, but we see God's people were exasperating. What does that mean? They were irritating. They kept dealing with God in a way that was unfit for the people of God to deal with their Father in heaven. And what had they done? They were sarcastically speaking ill of God. They were saying non-truths about Him. Look at what the text says uh, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. It says this, You've wearied me, the Lord, with your words. How have we wearied Him, you ask? They're asking Malachi this. And Malachi announces to them by saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and He's pleased with them. And where is the God of just judgment or justice? The first thing that they believed was that God delights. God delights in people's iniquity. Now why would we think that? Why would the people of Malachi think that way? We know that that's not true. Why would they have thought that way? Well, they saw a couple things because the Bible says that God is clearly and fully opposed to sin and evil. He's, he's set apart from that. So what was it involving? It was involving that they uh, saw that God was showing partiality to sinners. Write that in your outline somewhere. He was showing partiality to sinners. Their lives were no good. Why? The reason why their lives weren't what they wanted it to be because they blamed God and they said God is in cahoots with the evil one. God is in cahoots with um, the, the enemies of Israel. And as a result of that, they pointed to God and say, God, you're so easy on the ones who sin. You're so easy on our enemies, but you do it. You are so tough on us. You don't take care of us. You don't meet our needs. And you show partiality to those who sin against you. And yet, that's the farthest thing from the truth. And yet we say that many times. Why, why is God so nice to the sinner? And so tough on his own child. Well, the reason why they thought that there was uh, partiality was that he had showered prosperity on the sinner. Write that down. He had showered prosperity on the sinner. They said God loves sin. He delights in those who do evil. And not only does he not destroy them, but he lets them live. And not only does he let them live in not a mediocre life, but he lets them live with an amazing life. This is a million-dollar question. In fact, Habakkuk 1.13, you know, I'm, write down Habakkuk 1.13. I'll let you read that on your own for the sake of time. I want to look at Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure at heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Now listen to what he says. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Their careless or callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of earth. They, and yet he says, therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. 
They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Listen to what he says in verse 12. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Let me ask you a quick question. When was the last time in the quietness of your heart that you looked upon the wicked? That you looked upon a sinner and you said, I wish I could be like them. I wish I could have the life that they have. Look at the money. Look at their spouse. Look at their kids. Look at their house. Look at their job. Look at their happiness. Look at their health. They've got it made. And that's what the people of Malachi were doing. They were looking at the wicked ones and saying, we want that life. God, we don't care what you have for us. We want what they have. And they said, the reason why they have what they have is because, God, you are a lover of sin. You love sin because you shower people with it. Understand this, that God does not give the wicked his best. And so if you think that money, jobs, things of this world are the most important things, then you have lost track. You've lost sight of what's most important to God. The Bible says that every believer is showered, is blessed with every spiritual blessing in heaven. You know, that writer in the book of Psalms says, uh, says this. I, I like what he says in Psalm 73. Remember, he's talking about the wicked. He's angry with what the, what the wicked have. But notice what should be our, our words in Psalm 73, verse 25. After he gets done, it says, the wicked have everything. They're, they have life. They have love. They have all these things. He says, but whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire, nothing that the wicked can have I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near the Lord. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell of his deeds. The psalmist says, you know what? The wicked may have everything now, but there's nothing in this world that I want because I have a God in heaven who is my refuge, who is my strength. Malachi's, the people of Malachi's day should have understood this. They should have known what Psalm 73 said, but they didn't. So what did they come up? They came up with a second thought and that is that God dwells in perpetual indifference. What they said is, all right, God, you love the sinners. You, you fight for the sinners. You give the sinners whatever they want. And the reason why you do this, we're not all sure why you do it. But, but our thought is, is that you really, you're, you're indifferent to it. You're neither here nor there when it comes to it. And they ask the question, where is the God of justice? They're asking God, you said you're a just God. Where is your justice? I was reading a uh, Hebrew history book and one thing that it said that the people struggled with in regards to uh, God was their understanding of what God was doing during their day. And there was this thought that even probably it was prevalent during uh, Malachi's day that the reason why God had allowed the prosperity of the wicked and why God had allowed great things to happen to those who sinned was that God was ignorant to the fact. Write that down. God was ignorant to the fact. He did not know that that's how things were going to turn out. He thought it was going in one direction and then he finds himself uh, looking back and saying, man, the chips have fallen in a different way. That doesn't seem to be the way that I thought it was going to go. 
You know, there's a, this belief called open theism that speaks about this. And it, and it makes itself uh, uh, find its way into churches. And the idea here is, is that God is not completely omniscient. He doesn't know all the future events. So when bad things happen, when natural disasters happen, we find ourselves looking to God for the answers. And when we look to God in an open theistic view, God looks down and says, Man, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that happening. I'm just like you. I'm waiting for the newscast to tell me how things come together. And that's what they were saying. saying maybe God's not omniscient. Maybe God isn't all-knowing like he says he is because he would have stopped it had he known what was going to happen. The next thing that they would have brought up was God's weakness. God's weakness. God couldn't stop it from happening. Even though he wanted to judge the evildoers, even though he wanted to take care of those who sinned, he couldn't stop it. Harold Kushner, a rabbi uh, who was made famous when he wrote the book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, shared these heretical views about God. This is what he says in his chapter, Why Bad People Prosper. The answer, number one answer he gives is because God is too weak to stop it. He says that the Old Testament scriptures never speak of a God who is all powerful. Only in the Hebrew scriptures does it speak that God is mighty. And because of this lack of all consuming power, there are some things that are out of God's control. And people say, well, there's my view of God. We say, why do bad things happen? Why is there prosperity for the wicked? Instead of saying God is patient, God is gracious, God is kind, God is compassionate, we say God is weak. God can't see it coming, nor can God do anything when he does see it coming. The next one is apathy. God doesn't care about his people. He doesn't care about us. He lumps us all together with everyone else that he's created, and he oversees the galaxy in this cold and kind of distant way. He's not concerned about human affairs. He really doesn't care who's prosperous and who's uh, lacking. The next one they brought up was absence. God isn't there. He just created the world. This is a deistic idea that God just kind of created the world and then set it in motion and then went on some celestial vacation. Well, let's deal with some of these queens very quickly. Number one, we need to understand that when we look at God, and it seems that God is unjust, when we look to God and we see that things don't seem to be adding up, we need to always go back to point number one. God's patience has not been exhausted yet, but there's a day coming when God's patience will be exhausted. So when someone says that it's because of God's ignorance, we say that is not true. That God is all-knowing. Psalm 139, 1-4 speaks that every one of our steps are planned and known by God. Every one of them. God knows exactly what's going to happen today. He knew it before the foundations of the world. Every aspect of creation He knows and He is in full control of all of that. So we cannot say that the way, reason why these things happen, why bad things happen to good people is because God is ignorant of them. We know that God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. I love the words of Isaac Watt. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at His commands and all the stars obey. Listen to what he says in verse 3. There's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. The clouds arise, the tempests blow, by order from thy throne. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care, that everywhere that man can be, our God is present 
there. Our God is not weak. Our God is infinitely strong. What about that He doesn't care? He's apathetic to us. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all our anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. God cares for us. And finally, we see that God is not distant from the world, but He is present and active. When Job asked where God was during all his calamities, God begins for three chapters to say, were you there when I created this? Were you there when I took care of that? And for three chapters, Job's answer was no, but God's answer was yes. God is intimately involved in His creation. So we have to go back to His patience. So what does that teach us? Let me close out with point number three quickly. What are we to do? What are we to do? Instead of looking to God and wearying Him with our words, include, in, instead of going to God and, and saying, God, why are you so kind to the unjust? And, and why is it that you do not deal with people as you are supposed to? Point number three gives us God's path. What are we to do? Instead of going the way of the people of Malachi's day, it, we should involve expectation. It should involve an expectation. You want to do right? You want to make sure you don't weary God with your words? Then start expecting some things. God hits it right away uh, in the next verse. Malachi 3.1. This expectation involves a coming deliverer. It involves a coming deliverer. Look at what he says in uh, verse 1. He says, you've wearied me with your words. Where is the God of justice? And then God stops in chapter 3 and he says, see, here it is. You want to know where I'm at? This is where I'm at. I'm sending you my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord that you are seeking, this God of judgment, judge, justice that you are seeking will come to his temple. He's the messenger of the covenant whom you desire. He's going to come. But look at what he says, which we'll talk about next week. Who can endure the day of his coming? The people that said, you know, we've heard about this Messiah. He's never showing. And God says he's coming and he's on his way. You know, we find ourselves falling prey to that in the evangelical world as well. We say it's been, oh, 2,100 years since God said, soon I come. I'm coming soon. We say 2,100 years, it seems like God, God is your clock working right. Do you understand that it's the 21st century? God, do you understand that we're, we're fighting down here for our lives? God, do you understand that Christians don't have it good in life? God, do you understand that? Why are you so slow in getting here? And God says, see, behold, I'm sending my messenger. And are we going to be ready? The Lord is going to come. He's going to be our deliverer. And the Bible says in Titus 2.11 that we are to wait patiently. And other translations say wait expectantly for the blessed hope that is to come, the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The next thing we need to be aware of an expectation is a child's discipline. Now you say, well, what does that mean? A child's discipline. Understand this. When you begin to fall prey to wrong thoughts about God and you are a child of His, discipline will come. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that when we uh, start thinking wrongly about God, when we start pursuing things, God is going to come like a wonderfully, a wonderful heavenly Father and He's going to discipline those that He loves. You can't get away with wrong thoughts about God. Go back to point number one. God is being patient. He's being kind. He's being compassionate. Don't weary Him with your words. Pursue Him like the Father that He is because if not, the Bible says that we are going to endure hardships as a form of discipline. Another thing that we see is that God's path involves understanding that there is a certain destruction. Those that do wrong, those who sin, those who live arrogantly in the eyes of God, God says there's a day coming. 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, God says He's going to lay waste the world and the heavens. And that everything will be laid out bare before Him. The book of Revelation says that great and small, they will stand before Almighty God, before the great white throne judgment. And every, every name that's not found in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. The Bible says that that lake of fire will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, that it will be a place that the worm does not die. It will be a place of eternal torment. You want to know why God isn't doing uh, what you think he should be doing? Because he is waiting on the day that the destruction and judgment will happen. But because of God's love and his mercy and his grace and his compassion, he has held out that day so that all may come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what are we to do with this? Let me close with this. It involves a Christ-like direction. In fact, in Second Peter chapter 3, let me read this. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, Peter asks the question, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And since you are looking forward to this, he says in verse 14, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So what are we to do? There are three things I want you to write down very quickly. Number one, in the world that we live in, when it seems that those who do evil prosper, trust God in your times of trial. Whether it's medical conditions, financial financial instability, uh, problems at work, problems with kids, and you sit there and ask, why God? Why me? Obey Him in your times of trouble. Number two, obey God's moral standards no matter your situation. Just because you've been given a bad lot in life doesn't mean that you got the right to sin. Just because you think that God has been unfair to you doesn't mean that you can go and do whatever you want. Obey God and His moral standards in your life. And finally, develop a compassion for those who need grace. This is very important because when we start looking and saying, why do, the, uh, why do the wicked prosper? Why do they get away with all that they do? That doesn't speak about your desire to see God being patient and kind as He's been with you. But it's this desire to see people get what is due them. And what are you doing when you think that way? You are taking grace and you are throwing it down and saying, God, give them what they deserve. And yet, what do we remember? What do we think about? We go to God and we say, well, God, we love grace. We're so thankful for grace. And yet we don't look at compassion on those who need grace as much as we do. I pray that we would be a people that would pursue God's patience, pursue God's long suffering to show that in our own lives as we are patient with our friends and with our families and with our children and those around us so that in that the people will see the patience of God evident in our lives. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your for the time this morning. Lord, I thank You for the opportunity to open Your Word. Now, Lord, as we go from this place, as we close out our time this morning, Father, I pray that we would be a people who are patient and kind, long-suffering. Father, as we go to our ABFs, as we go to our activities this week, as we go throughout our work days, Father, I pray that we would be a people who are uh, involved in patience Lord, that we would pursue it, that we would know that there is nothing that isn't being done without Your watchful eye.
And as a result of that, that we see your patience and long-suffering in light of sin. Father, we don't want to weary you with our words. We don't want to weary you with our actions. So Lord, grow in us the desire and the patience and the endurance to wait for that day, that blessed day when you will come in the sky to take your people home. But Lord, remind us that at that moment when that happens, those that we love, those that we work with, those that we've been involved with who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and laid themselves bare before you, Lord, will reap an eternal destruction. Lord, I pray that that would be a driving force to move us, knowing that your patience will one day be lost to reach the world with the life-changing gospel of your Son. Drive us to that, Lord. I pray that you would move us there now because we do not know, as the Scripture says, the hour or the day. Because, Lord, we will one day see your Son come. And at that point, Father, we know that it will be too late for those who have never trusted you as their Savior. We thank you. We bless you for this time and for all that you've done. And we give our lives over to you as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.